Welcome back to The Human Exception. This week, we dive back into Montauk, discussing the nitty-gritty details of all the possible proof for and against the story, and drill down to what may be the heart of the matter. Content warning, expect foul language, but also be prepared for some pretty wild conspiracy theories, brief mentions of real government-sanctioned human experiments, discussions of cult-like predators, and a mini-dive into the Wilhelm Reich style of sexual healing and how that was abused, with some mention of potential childhood sexual abuse. Let's get ready for another human exception. Craig. Good buddy, old Craig, old pal. All right. Are we ready to go back to Montauk? Montauk. Well, what happened last time? Yes. <laughs> well, it's okay. You're going to get a bit of a reminder of stuff. So, yeah. Um, so, yeah, basically, there's two aspects of which to consider for the Montauk theory is the people telling the stories and the stories themselves. So, we're going to start by talking about the people. Um, and we're also going to start with Al Bielik, which Hallie's yes. already a big fan of. So, Al, in, Nickel, in Nickel's story, he said that he met Bielik after his 1986 talk, when Bielik claimed that he too had memories of the Montauk Project. But that's not the case. Nichols and Bielik were friends before the talk. There's even pictures of Bielik in the slideshow of the, bi- the base that Nichols shows at that very talk. And even then, he says that in 1985, they went as well. So, Nathan and uh, oh. Courtney have seen this picture already, but yeah. We got Nichols liar, in the center. Liar, liar, pants on, right. on fire. I got fucking photo evidence, bitch. None <laughs> that matters, but... <laughs> deep fake, but they didn't have those then. Deep fake! I got the receipts! <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. <gasps> so, uh, yeah, Bielik's biggest claim to fame is his involvement in the Philadelphia experiment in 1988. He saw a movie based on the story and said that this is what triggered his memories and made him realize that he had been involved. But there's a catch. The Philadelphia experiment happened in 1943, and Al was born in 1927. This would have made him 16 when the experiment happened. But don't worry, there's an explanation. (laughs) See, this wasn't Bielik's first life. Before he was Al, he was Ed Cameron, born in 1916. The story is that he and his brother Duncan, who was born in 1917, don't worry, we'll talk about Duncan, both became engineers that came into the employment of the Navy, and that's how they wound up on the Philadelphia experiment. Bielik claims that he and Duncan leapt from the USS Eldridge when the experiment began to go awry, and instead of landing in water, they landed in Montauk in 1983. There's a lot of variances to the story at this point. Um, In some, they leap from the ship and traipsed around time for a while, doing God knows what. But I'm going to focus on the most common version of the story, which is they show up in Montauk on August 12, 1983, just when everything's breaking loose. They get told that they need to go back to the portal to the, U- the U.S. Eldridge and shut down the transmitter no matter what it took. So the brothers run back and hack at the transmitter with an axe. Before the portal closes, Duncan jumps back, returning to 1983, leaving his brother in 1943. Bielik would carry on his life as Edward Cammon until 1947, when the Montauk Project called from 1983, needing his help with something. Quote, <laughs> 
quote, they decided that they didn't want me around anymore for whatever reason. And they did a number on me. Total brainwashing. Establishing a new personality, shipped me back into the past, and I became Alfred Bielek. With a new set of parents and a false birth certificate. And a complete cover story which hung together. And memories which may or may not be quite true, but nevertheless, still there. Well indoctrinated. I had not the foggiest notion that I'd ever been involved in the Philadelphia experiment. Much less the Phoenix Project until sometime in 1986. Amazing. Yes. Amazing. Move your own goalposts. Don't let other people move them for you. You <laughs> own goalposts. <laughs> oh, I was just going to say, and like, there's not really, like, this is in the time of like scammy, scam central where you can't verify someone's identity because like you just have to kind of trust they are who they say they are and you can't like go back and be like, how are you going to verify that story without like DNA or fingerprints? And those were. But he has pictures. Well, but those could be manufactured, Cam. Well, here we go. So so here's the thing. People have found manifests of the Eldridge, and there wasn't one Cameron on board the ship. Never mind two, or even three, as in some versions of the stories, Duncan and Bielik had a younger brother, Jim, who was there too and tragically died. Bielik had a website made at one point where he had his entire story written out, including a timeline of his lives, and with that, a picture of him as Ed Cameron. Later, Marshall Bonds would prove that this alleged picture of Ed Cameron was stolen from a Princeton yearbook. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, fucking scammers. <laughs> so, Duncan Cameron, um, the psychic from the project, um, we don't know much about him. He's the quietest of the four core guys. Um, the history that we do know can pretty much just be gleaned from the story. According to Bielik, he and Duncan were actually brothers in previous life. In Duncan's previous life, he was born in 1917 and would join his brother in the Philadelphia Project, ultimately jumping back into 1983 at the climax of the event. Bielik says that when J Duncan jumped back to 1983, he lost his time lock, which caused him to age rapidly at a rate of one year per hour, and he died in a few days. But the Montauk Project decided that Duncan was too valuable to just let die, so they needed a backup body. The project group contacts Duncan Sr. in 1947 that tell him about the situation, tell him he needs to have a new son ASAP. He must have thought this was cool beans because he did. He was married to a different woman than Duncan's original mother, but apparently she was cool with her husband hooking up with his ex to have babies because the future said so. First they had a girl, which just wouldn't do, and the project team sent them back to the bedroom. A new oh, Duncan is born in 1951. I can't. <laughs> I like that's even better than like it was an accident, you know, like that good old excuse. Like it was an accident. I didn't mean to. I just, you know, kind of fell into her. It's like, no, this is intentional. But the, the future, the future government shadow organization told me so. Also, what happened to the girl then? <laughs> They're like, oh, uh, we're just going to throw this one out in the trash. Like, I don't know. We don't need her She was anymore. adopted. She was a, a butterbox baby. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, New Duncan is born in 1951, but due to time travel restrictions, they weren't able to implant his soul until August 12, 1963. This New Duncan had no memory of having a brother or the Philadelphia Experiment, and this is the Duncan that would grow up and join the Montauk Project in the early 1970s as a psychic consultant. This Duncan would begin to recover his memory of the Montauk Project at the end of 1984, but never fully recovered his memories of his previous life. But according to Nichols, while Duncan may not remember what happened with the Montauk Project, Duncan's body did. Quote, 
Upon visiting a doctor in 1988, Duncan's doctor commented upon the unusual scar tissue in his lungs. Previous research in or about 1986 indicated that Duncan was actually brain dead. <laughs> I'm sorry, what? Because, you know, I guess psychic functions are an upper brain level thing that don't get... I, I don't fucking know. There's, so there's don't. Ex no explanation for this makes sense. <laughs> okay. But the theory is, of course, like the... Um, the the ta uh, radar tower that they're using emitted radiation, and that's what they said happened to him. And that's why he's brain dead and why he had the scars and stuff, but also, like, totally functioning human being, whatever. Oh, it's just fine. How does biology work? <laughs> okay. So, Duncan's relationship with this whole thing has been kind of tenuous. According to one John Quinn, in the fall of 1997, Duncan began to pull back from everything. Quote, Cameron is now known to be primarily and observably influenced by a woman who became very close to him in 1997, who would appear to be a monarch-type programmed agent herself. <laughs> it's the sister. <laughs> there it is. There she is. Wait, he's dating his sister? Yes. You okay. know what? I wouldn't put it past these guys. Is it his, It's his double sister, even. Because he's the same guy twice. <laughs> so since his association with this individual Cameron has retracted charges related to massive horrendous abusive mind control operations involving thousands of young people during the Montauk project now contending that the project only involved is only with, involved in time travel and interdimensional technologies Nichols and Moon have both indicated that they feel Duncan has been put under some kind of control at the direction of the recent companion and her associates so Duncan gets a girlfriend and he starts to have a life. How <laughs> dare Which obviously he's being mind controlled. <laughs> so I don't know what happened with this relationship. I guess whatever what is this didn't stick because it wouldn't be long after the Duncan got back on board and was telling all the stories again. Doctor girlfriend couldn't handle it anymore. Apparently not. I mean, like. How long do you stick around in that situation before you're like, I'm I mean, out? I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> so in the last years of Duncan's life, he offered some online services, including personal energy cleaning, which is about $275 or $600 for intensive energy cleaning. Couples therapy at $350 an hour by phone or in person, where Duncan helps couples understand and broaden their interpersonal boundaries using playful, joyful, and non-threatening methods. Multiple sessions are recommended at $350 an hour. I mean, I think I'm in the wrong career. I mean, yeah. if we I should be an online have a compass, we could just, like, grift the fuck out of people gonna say yeah that was that that's that's everyone's ulterior personality life is being the ultimate scammer villain being my rich. favorite my favorite is the service he offers is a safe flight which is 275 dollars preying on those people that are afraid to fly oh right my god that's awful <laughs> holy shit but also genius right <laughs> So yeah, Duncan was doing conventions up until 2017. Uh, so Preston, be, yeah, <laughs> long time, and well, he, and he died in 2018. So he may have oh, still so been doing them if he was still alive. I was thinking like I like was waiting for like the COVID funding or a shield package, but if he's dead, it's more sense. Yeah. <laughs> 
So Preston V. Nichols, born in Long Island, New York. He's the guy that wrote the book. And he was born in 1946. And alongside Al they're the primary proponents of the Montauk Project. Outside of this, it's really hard to find any information about him. Nichols claims to have degrees in engineering and parapsychology, neither of which we can confirm. This is in the book. This is written by Peter Moon. And quote, this is what it says. Preston soon explained to me that he actually did secure an engineering diploma from the University of Tampa, but it was given to him on the basis of challenge exams, where he established that you had the equivalent knowledge thereof. Preston had gone to school previously at Brooklyn Polytech, where he quit after being disgusted with his professor for stealing his work. Preston was and is a genius and has always been so. Far ahead of his peers when it comes to technical matters. He said that he never let human resources know that he had an engineering diploma, though, as it was more advantageous for him to work as a tech due to the fact that he could get he could get generous overtime pay. Well, the, oh, I don't have idea. this paper. I don't have this piece of paper. Oh, because they told me not to. This reminds me of um oh. a cult leader, and now I can't remember which cult leader. all of them (laughs) all of them no it's a specific guy it was a guy he's like i i i'm the smartest man uh oh you're thinking keith raniere thank you you, brain finally kicked in (laughs) keith raniere that's all i got off of that was just damn i am so smart but i can't prove it to you because i have to go underground because (laughs) the government doesn't want me aliens yeah aliens oh good all right, so yeah, it, it does appear that Nichols did work for Ale, which is a skeptic named Marshall Barnes had actually called their HR department, who confirmed it. So he did actually work for the Airborne Institute's laboratory or whatever. Um, he did work there for 20 years. So Montauk isn't Nichols' only outlandish claim, though. He claimed that he was once voluntold onto an Air Force contract to study foreign aircraft, which turned out to be a UFO. He also has another favorite story wherein Mark Hamill actually directed the 1984 film Philadelphia Experiment. And that he also grew up with Hamill, who grew up in California, not Long Island. Wait, Mark Hamill fucking... Luke Skywalker, bitch. What the they fuck? Want <laughs> okay. They're friends, obviously. Obviously, why wouldn't you be friends They grew with up together, you know, they live on opposite sides of the country. Man, they met in an IRCC chat room back in the day, didn't you know? Oh, wait. Right. <laughs> Time travel. Time travel. Time travel. Uh, so Nichols would frequently claim that his life was at risk or someone was trying to shut him up. Quote, Mr. Nichols has survived all kinds of slings and arrows. Unfortunately, not all of them metaphorical. In early September 1995 and again in 1996, attempts were made against his life. The former by means of a stage-contrived auto accident, which left Nichols seriously injured. He's since completely recovered. And the latter by means of poison nerve gas attack, carried out by the driver of a car who cut Nichols off as he was driving, forcing him to stop, at which point the gas was then released. Okay. These guys can't even have a car accident and have it just be another day. <laughs> oh, man. God, be covered with conspiracy. <laughs> Between 1981 and 1989, Nichols would host many panels at USBA conferences and cons around the, around the country. Most of it to do with fringe science related uh, to radio technology, but also lots of stuff to do with Montauk. He, he used to like actually focus more on the actual fringe science aspect of it, but it all kind of converted to Montauk eventually. <laughs> you were at least trying to be a scientist once? <laughs> or at least thinking you were? Uh. 
So Peter Moon, this is the guy that wrote the book with um, Nichols. As, I don't know much about the guy before Montauk was a thing. So, But we do know that Peter Moon is a pseudonym and his real name is Vince Barbaric. He had also been in the Sea Org, part of Scientology, up until 1983, even claiming to have worked closely with LRH aboard the mystery ship Apollo. Oh, no. Oh, yes. <laughs> this, was, this was the crossover I needed. Just, just add more into this pot of bullshit. It gets better. So, Moon portrays Hubbard as a white knight, one of the good guys engaged in psychic warfare against the malevolent mind controllers and reality manipula- manipulators. Moon believes that Hubbard to have been on the whole been on the whole dedicated to the personal spiritual emancipation of human beings from programming of virtually any kind. That checks out, right? He was too, obviously a good guy. Stop programming oh people. No. He's deprogramming everyone. He's yeah. our friend. He's programming you with stuff to fight the evil programming. Oh, yeah, totally. Why not? Yeah. Gotta so, Peter Moon. <laughs> Sorry. Just, I, just, my brain hurts. <laughs> so, Peter Moon, he owns Skybooks, which is a publishing company that he started in 1990. And that's what he uses to publish all the Montauk related material. So, he made a home publishing company just to publish these books. And still does today. Seems like Mo- that seems that Moon will be happy to ride the coattails of Montauk for the rest of his life. In 1993, Moon began the Montauk Pulse, which is a newsletter to give people the newest updates in relation to Montauk. I found an issue from 2003. It was 24 pages long, and only about four of them had original content. The rest was pretty much a catalog for anything that was remotely related to Montauk that could be purchased from Skybooks. Okay. Yeah. And, like, this is not a guy who claims he had anything to do with this. He was just the writer that helped Nichols get his story out. And he, he's just gonna, yeah, ride on this forever. Is he still a part of Scientology? No, is he left Scientology, Scientology in 1983, but he's kind of that fringe group of not Scientologists that still believe in Hubbard. Okay. Yeah, they, they feel like Scientology has been completely corrupted by this point. And not oh. adhering to Hubbard's original teachings. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but it gets better. This guy that we're going to talk about now is the best. And you guys are going to love him. So, Stuart Swerdlow. So, the men that I spoke about so far are characters unto their own. But Stuart Swerdlow is something else entirely. Swerdlow loves to make every aspect of his life magical. From his birth, his mother was told that she would never conceive... On to his own DNA, claiming to have multiple instances of alien DNA. Stewart was born in Long Island, New York, in the late 1950s. While in high school, Stewart was picked up at night and brought to Montauk. He claims that only 1% of Montauk boys survived. But Swerdlow wasn't just a victim. He actually became a programmer of Montauk boys because of his special powers. Okay. Okay. Nichols and Swerdlow have been connected since at least 1991, the book came out in 92, when Nichols was allegedly helping him recover memory of childhood abductions. In their investigation, they found that Swerdlow had been abducted by 16 different alien species. There's a resume. Um, Recovered memories. Fuck that shit. Right. So Swerdlow has a lot to say about his experience in Montauk, but I'll just mention two stories. He remembers that one of the bad guys at the base was named Hans von Gruber. <laughs> the same villain from Die Hard. I can't. Okay. He also once had a mission to travel back in time to meet Jesus. 
Quote, his mission, as he remembers it, was to go to find Jesus and do two things. First, he was supposed to remove a sample of blood, and then he was supposed to kill him. He finds Christ, and Christ volunteers to give him the sample of blood. Operating on his orders from Montauk, Wordlow then reports on emptying a revolver into Jesus Christ. I don't know. I don't know how to process this. Here, I'm going to make it better. I've got, I've got a picture here for you. You've got a picture of this guy killing Jesus? Yes. No, no, no. I've just got a picture of Swordlow that's oh. worth a thousand oh. words. That is this is an image that was on his own website of him. Oh, yes. Purple satin cloak. Yes. It's giving priest Dracula. Oh, yeah. Yes. He calls himself yep. Dr. Reverend Stuart Swordlow. Okay. Immediately. Okay. <laughs> that's that's uh wow okay <laughs> so unlike the other proponents swordlow just isn't a guy who's just having an unremarkable life and telling stories in 1992 swordlow was under investigation for bank fraud in regards to a large embezzlement from his employer swordlow said that he had no memory of committing said fraud he believed that the government had brainwashed him to siphon off funds oh my gosh yeah okay sure the government made me do know. it they don't yeah. just have access to do that all the time anyway. $50 per roll toilet paper. Swerdlow <sighs> would eventually plead guilty, but later would say that he was coerced, and he was sentenced to 33 months in prison. Swerdlow had done a very good job at scrubbing any articles about his arrest from the internet. He has been known to descend on forums where he's being discussed in a negative tone and threaten legal action to those who are talking about him, or even the website on which this is hosted. But it's not that he denies his time in prison. It's all part of his own narrative of the government's persistent efforts to shut him up. So here's a quote about Swerdlow from his website about himself. Quote, Stuart, a linguist who speaks 10 languages, is an expert in deprogramming and determining which Illuminati programs are embedded in the mind patterns of an individual. His mission is to help others heal themselves in a positive way, thus avoiding the negativity he experienced. It's always the Illuminati, guys. Always. Always. So on culteducation.com in 2008, a thread began discussing Swordlow and his, and his company, Expansions. Expansions offers dozens of books on spiritual healing, aliens, and more, written by Swordlow and his wife, Janet. The program also claims to be able to help people overcome trauma, deprogram people, and help scan your body for microchips with techniques all designed by Swordlow. A common thing that Swordlow likes to say is, you have probably been programmed, otherwise you wouldn't have found me. Okay. Yet for such a wholesome mission, they do charge an awful lot of money, and they love to scare people into silence with threats of legal action or worse. A lot of the stories have very similar undercurrents, how the Swordlows seem to only be interested in money and fame. Allegedly, the Swordlows live in a multi-million dollar home, and that was in 2008, so... God knows what it is now, on a large piece of land that they are constantly luring people to, making some sort of commune. They target wealthy people, women in particular, and put a lot of effort into isolating the victims, convincing them that their partners, friends, families, even jobs are not their true path and that they should leave them. This is the, the male teal swan. <laughs> what the fuck? Wow. So wow. there are so many stories, but one posted in 2011, I think, kind of gives us the best insight. Um, the user's name is Jack Around a Tree. I'm just going to call him JT for short. 
They tell a story of how they got involved with expansions in 2009. They had been a fan of the books and the website, so in March 2009, they reached out to, to Swordlow and asked for some questions. They received no answers and instead were suggested to book a consultation with him for the low price of $325 for two hours. Like, I guess he's cheaper than Duncan, but... <laughs> That's still a big chunk of money, like... It is! It's a lot. It, it gets worse. Even pay for journals, guys. Like, I'm not gonna give a stranger 300 and some odd dollars to give me bullshit. The fuck? <laughs> So, quote, what I was told during my first consultation was highly disturbing. I was told that my current partner was not the right person for me and that I should be leaving her as I would some I'd meet someone better. And in fact, Stuart and later Janet constantly tried to convince me that I should break off and cut my relationships to my family, my girlfriend, my friends. And throughout my experience expansions at the time, I was constantly doubting myself and my relationships to the people close to me. In particular, however, I was informed that I was specifically programmed as part of satanic sexual rituals of the Illuminati or the shadow government. <laughs> My own yeah. subsequent research into this matter, a subject which is, turns out to be documented way too well, left me with a very horrible impression and sensation of these rituals. I was traumatized by this information for months. So if you've ever looked into, like, the satanic panic claims of satanic sexual rituals, they're fucked up. They're really fucked up. Super fucked up. Yeah, it's and not some satanic like, at all. It's yeah. it's it's mind blowing the things that these people claimed and then got people in trouble for. Yeah, yeah. That that'll be an episode one day. Oh well, yeah. So relevant because it's happening again. <laughs> uh... So finally, and especially towards the end, the consultations for which I paid turned out to be counseling for Stuart for a number of his personal issues. Not sure how I ended up there, but nonetheless, I ended up paying for consulting someone else. Indeed, very stupid of me to do so. Swerdlow would go on to tell JT that they were very special, a chosen one by the Kuiper's Belt aliens, and that they and other special agents were supposed to save the world. Quote, of course, if you disagreed, you disagreed with anything Stuart told you, the Kuiper's Belt aliens would simply switch you off, and that is, you would no longer be a Kuiper's Belt, and, I can't even say this word, Kuiper's Belt alien, and thus lose your unique chance to save this planet. At the same time, I was told by Stuart that we had shared several lifetimes together, and this was our sacred mission. I mean, I say fuck the world. <laughs> <laughs> As time went on, Stuart suggested that and told me that it would be good to deprogram me, usually using with what he calls Wilhelm Reich techniques. These are outlined in detail in his book, The True Reality of Sexuality. In a nutshell, what happens is that the deprogrammer, in this case Stuart, masturbates you to the point of just before orgasm and then keeps his client there for as long as possible while the mind deprograms. After orgasm, the deprogramming session ends. Edging. That's edging. <laughs> This yep. sounds like another cult I just heard about. <laughs> where it's like a sex, it's like a, like it's a, an orgasm thing where they try and like make you orgasm over and over and over again. And it's very weird and predatory. I mean, that doesn't sound terrible, but the, that's in the <laughs> circumstances. It's not good. Let me let me like I'm just gonna throw it out. It's not good. I'll find I'll find it eventually and like share. No. But like good times. Oh my god, why? So quote, I have since learned that this is not an isolated case at all, and that there are a number of people who have reported the sexual stalking and harassment to the point of actual sexual assault. 
I can, of course, only speak for myself, but I was told by Stuart Swerdlow that he had sexually deprogrammed other people. No, I just, I just can't. That's like, I don't know. These cult leaders in sex sometimes, I swear to God. It's a yeah. lot. They need it's to not. Wow. So in spring 2011, JT would visit the Swerdlows at their home in Michigan and became aware of many conflicts and small wars that the Swerdlows were engaged in. Their opponents, often people who they were once very close with or business partners. The Swerdlows always explained that these people had their programming triggered and didn't know what they were doing. JT would later find out that most of these, quote, attacks were initiated by the Swerdlows themselves. <laughs> so it's the whole, like, you know, us versus them. If you leave me, you are the bad guy. And I'm also going to make it look like you're attacking me so you, that everyone else will feel sympathy for me. Ah, that's fucked up. It's like a, a classic Jen move right there, too. <laughs> so after leaving, JT would learn that they'd been put on a death list by the Swordlows, along with 12 of the 15 other former clients, friends, or business associates. Quote, the question one would have to ask is if their message and work was so neutral and charitable, why are so many disgruntled former clients... And why would it be necessary to put these people on a hit list? Yeah. Some of the more outrageous claims made by the website include the following. To only, dr to only drink distilled water. That psychiatry is a form of mind control. And you're a fucking love this one, Hallie. That the U.S. government has created the HIV virus to eliminate the African populations in order to stop the planet Nibiru from invading. I have heard this before. Yes. And but, what the fuck? But the planet Nibiru was, however, destroyed in 2010. Right. Right. Or 12. Or uh, maybe. <laughs> Depending on, on our Well, time, time travel could have been any time, right? Oh, yeah. Oh. And then, of course, that Amy Winehouse died as part of a satanic ritual sacrifice. That checks out. Well, why we gotta go pick it on Amy Winehouse? Come on now. Uh, so, no, like not you. That, yeah. Why do, why do we got Why do we got to drag that poor that poor woman who had troubles of her own into this shit? Because they make perfect fuel for the conspiracy fire. So, which is the worst? Uh, so, a quote from another user said this. His workshops, especially the Insiders group, are specifically an extra programmed to help destroy the Illuminati. In order to be able to join this group, the expansion member has to cough up $10,000 and is told that she or he are very important to help fight the dark powers and to take over the planet by the alien forces and entities. $10,000. Teal Swan just... He's <laughs> step up your game, apparently. Yeah. yeah. So I found an event listing from 2005 for expansions that listed, and what was listed was a bunch of questions that would be answered in the talk. These are fucking great. Um, how does sexuality replicate the original creative force of the god mind? Is there a global plan to control humanity through sexuality? What does masturbation have to do with the god mind? <laughs> Why should you wait for the correct sexual relationship? Oh my gosh. What do the sexual trinity of love, intimacy, and trust and the sexual trinity of mind control have in common? Wait, 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 wait. There's two trinities? I'm so confused. Yeah. Sexual trinity. Sex and mind control. Mind. Sex okay. And mind control. I mean, okay. if you've ever had a good dick, 
<laughs> I think you could argue that that's a form of mind control. <laughs> oh, Courtney. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm not sorry. How can hyperspace techniques help you conceive the best child for you? <laughs> How can people be sexually deprogrammed? Why are sexual relationships difficult for specifically programmed people? How do your sexual fantasies describe your personal relationship to the god mind? And finally, what role does group sexuality have in bringing forth physical manifestations? There it is. People pay for the shit. <laughs> mm -hmm. You'll see God if you just come over here and join my orgy. <laughs> so, in short, these are Hallie's favorite people. <laughs> And I... she only lives a couple hours away. Fucking <laughs> am not. <laughs> That's so mean. <laughs> I hate it. I hate all of it. So speaking of Hallie, earlier today, you were oh. talking about QAnon. Which got me thinking. <gasps> I did a Google and found an interview with Laura, Laura Eisenhower and Stuart Swerdlow from 2018. Here is what he had to say. The Q movement, as I have subsequently found in this past year or so, is legitimate. Q is not a person. It's a group. It's less than 10 people, approximately nine, six of whom are deep military intelligence. The other three are alien or extraterrestrial, and they have been monitoring us for a very long time. They're connected, the extraterrestrial part, to what I've been talking about for the last 12 or 13 years as being part of the Cooper Belt group, which I know we will discuss in a moment, and they have an agenda to remove the deep state from this planet. Yes. Yes! Yep. I mean, oh, is the deep state all... intergalactic now? Oh, yeah. Did I miss yeah, that? Yeah, it counts that, yeah, because you have to include the Pleiadians and some of the other lizard people in that. Gotcha. They're part of the, the, the council. They've been around forever, but, you know. They're just yeah, they're, they're, they are running everything from the, the background anyways, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, yeah, Stuart's word, though, guys. Like, obviously, he's a great person. Um, <sighs> My brain can't handle this. And I was like, Fuck. <laughs> hmm. So one thing to consider, of course, is the inconsistencies. When you and your friends tell the same story for 30 years, things change with time. But these are easily dismissed when you can say that you're still recovering your memories and that you're probably still partially programmed. There's a YouTube video titled Montauk Survivors. The video is over three hours long and consists of Bielik, Nichols, and Duncan telling their story. But even in this video, they can't keep their story straight. In the first hour, Nichols says that only a couple people were lost in time. But in the second hour, he says that no one was. And in the book, he suggests hundreds. There are some that believe the group is part of a government disinformation campaign, whose job it is to spread distortions, half-truths, and falsehoods about the true nature and purpose of the government mind control projects. In Christopher Giratano's documentary, The Dark Files, Giratano takes his two other hosts to Nichols' lab, where a random guy is wandering around wearing a pot on his head. Can't make this up. I got a picture of it. On his head. This oh. is legit from the documentary. Okay. Amazing. So as one of the hosts says at the time, something along the lines is, if you want to make sure no one ever believed this stuff, you couldn't hire better people. <laughs> Look, Mr. Copperbottom is going to save you from all of the aliens. It's in the holy books. We just haven't seen them ourselves. Sounds like a hobbit. <laughs> Stop <laughs> it, yeah. 
So um, usually when we see conspiracy theory, the primary narrative is presented by one person. But in this case, we have five people contributed to the core mythos. Nichols, Bielik, Cameron, Swerdlow, and Peter Moon. Nichols and Bielik were by far the most prolific of the early storytellers, and they lived across the country from each other. We know that 1991 is when Bielik added the Philadelphia experiment to the mythos. Was this something that they planned together, or just something they cho- that he chose to do? The same can be said about making the claim that Duncan is his brother. Bielik says himself that Duncan didn't believe this for some time. Anyone who's ever played Dungeons & Dragons knows how discomforting it is for other people to make choices about your character. So like, was this a group decision that the Philadelphia experiment was going to be involved? Was Duncan given the option to say whether or not he was Bielik's brother? It does feel like the world's best RP. <laughs> like, like, hey, let's do Dungeons and Dragons, but let's make it a government conspiracy. And then they made Delta Green before Delta Green. <laughs> yes. So um, I picked out some other choice people that have been involved with Montauk over the years. So we're going to talk about Joe Lafrano. He grew up in Montauk and today works for the park services doing maintenance around Camp Hero. Joe believes that he is a Montauk boy, claiming that in 1980 or 81, when he was 12 or 13, is when he first was abducted. He recalled under hypnosis, hypnosis, that a local boy whom no one knew very well invited him to bike to the base. Quote, I didn't believe it until 1994. I was hypnotized by a certified hypnotist for about 40 minutes, and all these memories flooded back. They did very bad things to us out there. We were just little kids. They had no right to experiment on us. It was very dark and very evil thing. Chris Garitano has had a chance to interview Joe for a show, Strange World, that he was doing for Discovery. They met up at Camp Hero Park to chat, but before they could even get started, Joe's boss shows up and tells him he's not allowed to give an interview. Garitano does speak with Joe a little later, but Joe is hesitant to say anything as he doesn't want to risk his job. <laughs> He's working for the government state park, so obviously when, when you work for the government, right, there's right, right. things that you sign. You can't speak on behalf of the government. Yeah. Yeah, so this is like the guy that's most recently been talkative about it, like 2018 kind of thing. He still talks about it. So Andy Perro. In August 1998, at Bob Ears' C-I-R-E-A-P group, which I think is an alien group, um, Eve Lorgan tells the story of Nichols coming to speak about Montauk, and with him he brought a Montauk boy, Andy Perro. Here's a quote from Andy Perro himself. As my memory comes back, I discover that I was not only used as an assassin, but that I was actually one of the Montauk boys. All the events that Nichols describes in his book are 100% true. However, the fact that the project was supposed to have been abandoned at Camp Hero in the year 1983 could not be further from the truth, as I was also there sometime between the years of 1988 and 1993, and the project is still going strong. This book is totally true, but it's still going on. Oh my god. Hey. So... After the event, Lorgan, Nichols, and Andy go to a cafe and continue talking. Andy tells them that in 1998, he was arrested in his home in New Jersey by local police on behalf of the FBI, aided by a complaint from a vengeful ex-girlfriend. He was thrown into a mental institute, but luckily he was able to get out a couple weeks later. This is a quote from Lorgan. She says, I was told recently by Preston Nichols that not long after the spring of 1999, Andy would travel to Arizona and got involved in some cult, perhaps to stay hidden or out of the system. Maybe he got reprogrammed by the cult members. He then traveled out of the country to Korea and such exotic places as Nepal, Tibet, and Kathmandu. By mid-year 2000, Andy returned to the States, out of money. 
Andy went back to New Jersey and asked for money from his family, which resulted in another unfortunate incident. His family refused to give him his money, so he took what he needed, a car and cash, by force. So this is the last that we hear about Andy in regards to the Montauk Project. But Andy was kind enough to list his full name and birth dates in his original story. So I googled him. Oh no. <laughs> so in 2000, Andy was taken to court in New Jersey for allegedly for alleged kidnapping and assault. The victim was Eleanor Perro, his mother. Eleanor was having breakfast oh, when Andy no. decided... <laughs> sorry. Eleanor was having breakfast when Andy appeared to snap. Grabbing her and throwing her from the table, he would then proceed to physically assault her and threaten her with a knife with the attack lasting 20 minutes. Jesus. Quote, the defendant was making delusional remarks saying that he did not come back to live in the house with video bugs so that they could watch him. Eleanor also explained that her son believed that the FBI wanted to clone him for his DNA because he had superpowers. Oh no. This was in a, like, testament, testimony, guys. Right, right. So he would force her to drive to the bank and take all the, out all the money and give it to him. Shortly after which she escapes, jumps out of the car, and runs to a nearby post office and calls 911. He was charged with third-degree criminal restraint in the end and was imprisoned for a short time. But that's not the end of Andy's story. On April 8, 2020, Andy was apprehended by Richardson, Texas police for the murder of an old friend from college. The case status at this time is still pending. For the most part, the Montauk community seems unaware of Andy's activities post the story, or if they know, they choose to ignore it. So yeah, one of them turned into a murderer. Yikes. So, yeah, these are the kind of people that are people are believing about these conspiracy theories that are so 100% hell-bent on it. Mm-hmm. But well, of course, it this- like, like mm-hmm. he probably had a lot of like mental health issues. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it goes to my mind is that, that yeah, in 1998, he was put into a mental health facility and they chose to release him. Well, I mean, I'm not surprised. Yeah, well, this is... I mean, yeah. the alternative would be not great for him, which is just to, like, put him on barbs and leave him in a corner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, not a good time. So let's talk about John Ford. <laughs> So John Ford was a friend of Nichols and another Long Island native who had a thing for UFOs, founding LUFON, the Long Island UFO Network, and writing regular newsletters. In 1998, Ford was arrested for conspiring to murder three Suffolk County executives through radium poisoning. Oh my gosh. That's work. (laughs) Yeah, it is work. So the quote from him is, the blame for it rests squarely on the shoulders of the UFO cover-up. From everything that I've endured and experienced, that I've developed the belief that the government is cover-up is administrated here on Long Island and partly expressed to the Suffolk County Police Department. The police have also cooperated with the feds in staging situations where they can discredit the reputation of individuals who are UFO witnesses. The usual method is to run the witness or victim into Stony, Stony Brook Psychological Department on either a suicide attempt charge or stating that the person is acting strangely. From there, either the person is either confined or has been threatened by the police and psychiatrists into silence. They do this, and I know for a fact that they do it because they do it to several key, key witnesses of the South Haven Park UFO crash case, and now they're doing it to me. Let's kill you. Like, why? That's so much work and paperwork. They would just kill you. It's less paperwork. They can get well, away with it the police. Well, according to Peter Moon, this is exactly what happened to John Ford. 
Ford was never tried and instead was transferred to Mid-Hudson Forensic Psychiatric Center, where he still is today. Remember, he was arrested in 1998. He probably was found unfit to stand trial, because he's probably not mentally sound, and that's probably why he's still in the fucking... Well... <laughs> asylum. I will tell you. So according to Moon, Ford was drugged in jail and never given a proper opportunity to defend himself and was tricked into pleading insanity. But we've got two facts here. One, Ford did have radium on his property, but with an illegal amount, and it was for the purpose of calibrating his Geiger counter. Two, to poison someone to death with radium would have taken two decades. So I'm sorry, there's a legal amount of radium that you can have? Apparently. Okay. (laughs) I did not, I uh, will be honest, I did not fact check that. But (laughs) I'm looking, because that's wild. (laughs) Yeah, so what? Wow. So what the hell happened? One night while bullshitting with some buddies, he pulled a Joe Exotic and started joking about killing his political rivals rivals with radium. But one of the people the there that night really wasn't a buddy at all, and actually was wired by the cops after telling them that they thought Ford was a public threat. So Ford and some of his friends were arrested, and then when Ford's lawyer got the case, he found a record of four other. Similar incidents of Ford running his mouth and getting into trouble. The lawyer believed his client had been subject to selective prosecution and that was a victim of local politics. He was heavily, him, both him and his mother were heavily involved in the politics of the area. Um, his lawyer unsuccessfully sought a change of venue. When that wasn't going to happen, he then pursued an insanity plea, feeling it a better option than Ford going to prison and losing his pension. Four psychiatrists and psychologists determined that Ford was delusional and not fit to stand trial. Now, Ford's two friends that were also arrested, they pleaded guilty to lesser charges in exchange for giving testimony against Ford. Great friends there. Yeah. So Ford didn't have to lie to get, to get declared mentally unfit for trial. He just told the psychiatrist what he truly believed. UFOs, government conspiracies, the Montauk Project, that kind of thing. And while on the Mental Institute, Ford wrote a 102-page manifesto titled, My Statement to the Media. Some of his claims include that he had been a CIA agent since the age of 19, leading a hidden life from family and co-workers. He was not paid, so there was no record of him. And Ford was... I'm sorry? Said convenient. Right. (laughs) Ford was also recruited to observe Soviet KGB agents in Queens who tried to assassinate him five times. So Ford is baffled that being insane is more believable than him being a spy. This is a quote from a news article about the uh, arrest. Says Some of his supporters are willing to believe the latter, but he seems to me to have the profile of an agent, says Peter Boone, who publishes conspiracy books on Long Island. But others, like Preston Nichols, think that spending 17 months in jail pushed Ford over the edge, and he said, he's a loony as they come, but he's a coherent loony, says Nichols, the time traveler. That was in a newspaper article. Amazing. So, as of this month, Ford has been granted his first supervised furloughs from the psychiatric center since his commitment. It's hoped that he'll be granted unsupervised furloughs this year. If you want to know more about that, there will be a link on the website of what the current thing is. There's a whole campaign to free Ford. But yeah, since 1998. Ew. Wow. And then one last dude here, Jimmy Abitello. Um, This is a quote from an an article written by Chris Casham. It says, I got an urgent phone message that said, I was the Montauk drummer. 
This is what the person said, and they gave me his name as Jimmy Abatello. Quote, I played on the mind control subliminal recordings, he explained. Of course, there was a house band at Montauk, too, part of a psychedelic rock and roll conspiracy. Abatello, a Long Islander, now in his late 30s, was an unbalanced man, apparently. Peter Moon told me that Abatello once had a parrot, his best friend, but the parrot turned on him and Abatello had to kill it. Okay. These are the people that are talking about this story. <sighs> so this is just a small handful of the people that have claimed their involvement. And whose stories can be compressed into a couple paragraphs. <laughs> There's a lot. <laughs> wow. So, yeah, those are the people. There's a story. So, the Philadelphia Experiment. So before it be like, Montauk had nothing to do with the Philadelphia Experiment. The story of Philadelphia Experiment has been around since the 1950s. The story is a funny one. In 1955, Morris K. Jessup publishes his book, The Case for UFOs, a speculative analysis of the possible technologies that UFOs may utilize. Sometime after publishing, Jessup begins to receive letters from a guy named Carlos Miguel Allende. Allende goes on to tell a story of how the USS Eldridge appeared in a puff of smoke, of green smoke, in October 1943 in Norfolk, Virginia, all the way from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Note that he said October, not August 12th, like Bielik likes to say. <laughs> Allende alleges that he was, a civilian he was on a civilian merchant ship, the SS Andrew Furseth, docked in Norfolk when this happened. But there's, a couple well, there's a couple facts that completely destroy his claim. The Eldridge was never in Philadelphia. The Eldridge and the SS Furseth were never in the same port at the same time, at the same time. The Eldridge would go to Norfolk on December 31st of that year with four other ships, but in the normal way. The Office of Naval Research, the department that allegedly is responsible for the Philadelphia experiment, didn't come into existence until four years after that incident. As expected, the Navy denies that any such thing happened. In 1957, Jessup receives a call from the Office of Naval Research. They had received a copy of Jessup's book that had been heavily noted and notated by what appears to be four different people. Jessup had only one guess on who it could be, and he provided all the letters that Alendi had been sending him. It was determined that these four authors were actually all Allende. So he wow. annotated this guy's book, pretending to be four people with different pens, <laughs> different names. So I guess the two O&R officers found this particularly interesting because they retyped the whole book with, annot with the annotations. 25 copies were made, and it became known as the Vero edition. And the rest is history. A couple of copies of this book got out, and that's the story of the Philadelphia Experiment. Ten years later, in 1969, Allende appeared at an aerial phenomenon research organization in Tucson, Arizona, or Tucson, Arizona, and confessed that the whole thing was a hoax. Ten years later, no. Allende would recant the statement. <laughs> a, journalist, a journalist named Robert Goerman would be asked to investigate this guy, the main reason being that Goerman was from the same town that Allende was. On a trip home, Gorman was visiting his parents, and he wound up in a conversation with the elderly neighbors that he'd known for a couple years. While chatting, the topic turned to Gorman's work, and he mentioned the story he'd been working on, trying to find out what the deal was with this Allende guy. Having discovered that Carlos Miguel Allende was not his real name, it was actually Carl and Alan. And the elderly couple were very familiar with Carl because he was their son. They then unloaded stacks of files of books and papers that Carl had been sending them over the years, mentioning that he's been sending this shit to all the family members for the last couple decades. And on top is the Vero edition of Jessup's book, and inside is autographed, Love Your Son, Carl M. Allen. 
So here's a quote from Carl's dad. Take what you need with you, Bob, and let's see more of you. Don't rush to get in the back. We trust you. Just don't make sh- just don't make us the target of cooks or reporters or anything like that. I'll help all I can, but hide my real name and my location. All the publicity could ruin my business. So through these materials and conversation with Carl's parents and brothers, Gorman put together the puzzle of a man whose fan mail was responsible for creating a 20-year-old legend by that time. The whole article is great, and I'll link it on the website, but... The cliff notes are that Carl was gifted but disinterested, often turning his genius to elaborate pranks. Once in 1956, he feigned a heart attack so convincingly the doctors had to run three EKGs just to confirm it wasn't actually a heart attack. Jeez. His brothers found medical textbooks all over the house noted by Carl. That's how they figured out that this is what he did. Carl was self-deluded. He told his family he co-authored a, co-authored a book with Jessup, as if scribbling all over a book was the same as co-authoring. That's what he called it in the letter that he sent them to. When he sent with them to the with the Vero edition. Gorman said to one of the brothers that he'd love to interview Carl, but this is what they had to say: "You'll never nail Carl, nail Carl on this. Between changing the subject and changing a story, when inner, whenever anyone gets close, I wish you luck." So. In 1969, when Carl announced the whole thing was a hoax, he told um, April that the whole intention of the letters was to encourage the ONR into research and discourage Jessup from his own research. He never once expected the letters or the book to be published, but when they were, he decided to lay low, hoping that the Fuhrer would die down, and it didn't. Material was continuing to be published, citing Carl as a source, and that's what drove him to the April's office in 1969 to confess but something changed his mind and as he volunteered himself to be interviewed for a book about the Philadelphia experiment in 1978, bringing him back on the spotlight. He would continue to offer scant interviews to believers up until his death in March 5th, 1994. Despite many declarations that Carl's testimonies were a hoax, um, interest has barely wavered over the years. In 1984, the Philadelphia experiment would be made into a film and would be released four years, and four years later, Bielik would then see it and add it to his ever-evolving history. But what if Bielik's whole discovery of the Philadelphia experiment was total bullshit? You see, Bielik has been involved in the UFO conspiracy circles since the 60s. Thanks to some excellent sleuthing from DE173.com, we know that in 1966, Bielik gave somebody a copy of his copy of the Vero edition. So he's had the source material for Philadelphia experiments since the 60s. So make of that what you will. But no, he only, he only discovered it in 1998. So yeah, Philadelphia Experiment, there's absolutely no nothing. There's nothing. It's literally based on fan mail. I love it. <laughs> that is incredible. Wow. Right. <laughs> it, it blows my mind. It's like, this is what it comes down to. Some guys. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then people pick it up and treat it like gospel. And It's wild. It's wild. Man. Oh, man. It's the Montauk Project. Um. There's a lot to say about the famous first talk that Nichols did in 1986. We already know that there's contradictions, that Bielik was already friends with Nichols, despite Nichols later claiming that it was because of this talk that got involved. 2017, uh, sorry, in a 2017 issue of the Montauk Pulse, Moon claims that Nichols went to, when he went to do the talk, he was confronted by agents who tried to stop him and they got into a yelling match. The guy we see in this video does not seem like someone that got into a fight beforehand. He's very relaxed, bantering with the USP moder- USPA moderator and the audience. The moderator was a man named Bob Budlik, one of the founding members of the USPA, who unfortunately is no longer with us. But his son is. And I got in contact with Scott by pure accident when I was having troubles placing my order. We 
We exchanged emails and even chatted on the phone. While Scott grew up around the USB conferences and many of those involved, he personally didn't know Nichols that well, but described him as someone who was pretty unflappable and a good showman. When it comes to Nichols and that talk, my personal belief is that the argument didn't happen. happen. As in the talk, he wasn't telling his story. He was, saying, he was telling the story of two ex-military men who had told that to him. The, he wasn't claiming these as his memories yet, despite what he says in the books. He's like, oh yeah, I've got, I ran into uh, an ex-military engineer and, and an ex-military guy, and they told me this crazy story about Camp Hero. It's the entire talk. It's, so it's not even his story at the time. Wow. So why would agents try and stop him from talking about it? Because it's real for real. and For real, real, not for play, play? For not for play, play. It's for real, real. And uh, any talk of it cannot be, cannot be let out. Totally. So what's the deal with Camp Hero? Camp Hero was built in 1942 as part of the Air Force's Coastal Defense Network in World War II. In 1960, the Sage Radar Tower was installed, but both it and the base were decommissioned in 1981 and given to the state in 1984, and it was then opened to the public as a park in 2002. Major Miles Martin was the base's last commanding, commanding officer, serving from the July 1978 to the closing in 1981. He says the number of personnel was at 120 at the time he took over, versus the 206 at the height of the Cold War. As the base slowly was decommissioned, those numbers dwindled, so in November 1980, Martin held the base closing ceremony, two months before it would officially be decommissioned, while there were still enough people to attend. The 773rd Radar Squadron operated Montauk Air Force Station from 1951 to 1981, but according to the Airman First Class David Ackerman, many of the people that worked on the base were civilians. You would think that if you were doing top-secret experiments, you wouldn't want civilians poking around. Yeah, no. Here's a picture of some guys goofing off at the base. So in the books, Nichols alleges that the base was decommissioned in 1969, which doesn't line up with what we know is true, that it was decommissioned in 1981. Um, he also alleges that from 1972 to 1983 is when the base was used for the Montauk Project. Considering that it was supposedly active until January 1981, that also doesn't check out. <laughs> Alas, the conspiracy didn't continue loud enough that some of these, those associated with the base, including a radar veterans group, will not even answer questions from reporters unless they are assured that the article is not going to give any credence to or focus solely on what they call some hokey UFO mind control government conspiracy time travel nonsense. Jesus. They're so fucking done with it. <laughs> Amazing. So, over the years, those interested in exploring the fabled location of the Montauk Project ran into a myriad of troubles, as for a long time, the base was completely closed to the public, so naturally, people would break in. Conspiracy theorists would say it was off-limits because the military is afraid of what people would find, but there were also reports of armed landmines and hazardous chemicals in the area. What's the truth? So Don Bender, a local historian, had this to say. To make the park really accessible, you had to clean out the asbestos. Deal with the unexploded ordnance, demolish old buildings and towers that are decrepit and would be dangerous to people. That tends to be a low priority in the federal government. They work very slowly. Then Airman First Class David Ackerman says this. There were areas on the base that were considered off-limits, but I can't remember exactly where they were. They would have been some place to, they would have been the place to store the radioactive material because components used in the radar transmitters were radioactive. And then Chris Garitano, the documentary 
says, the park brochure says not to use cell phones because of the unexploded ordinances. But really, if you were the U.S. government, would you allow tourists to walk around where there were unexploded landmines and count on them to not use their cell phones? No. Right? <laughs> first, thing, first thing someone's going to do is pop out their phone for a selfie. Right? So, yeah. In 2019, the Air Force released a fact sheet about Camp Hero. Um, there's various cleanups over the years, uh, talking about, oh, there's a diesel spill that they had to clean up in, like, 1993. And there was an investigation because there were research exercises that involved chemicals and stuff back in the 50s. They wanted to make sure that was cool. Um, they did find that there was, like, some, uh, there are some chemicals and there are some ordinances in the area that need to re be removed. Which the total estimated cost for this would be $20, $20 million. So, yeah, the government's in a rush to do that. Yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> not at all. <laughs> also, there's a 120-foot-wide, there's 70-ton radar antenna on the base that has begun to rust. No one wants to be responsible if that falls on somebody. Right. Oh, my gosh. Speaking of the radar tower, here's a picture. So the SAGE radar is a big part of the project, the antenna's transmission being the source of the mind control waves. SAGE stands for Semi-Automatic Ground Environment, and there was around 20 SAGE towers built across the U.S. in the 50s and 60s. These towers created a network that would help the U.S. defend against Soviet air attacks and were a big part of Cold War defense. The one in Montauk is known as ANFPS-35 and is the designation of Z-45. It was the last tower to be decommissioned in January 1981 and is the only one whose antenna is still intact. But at this point, it's so rusted that it can't even rotate anymore. There are reports, though, that when the tower was functional, anyone living within a six-mile radius of the tower noticed its effects. According to Vinnie Grimes, back in those days, the antenna drove us nuts. Every time it went around, you would get snow on the TV. They tried all sorts of different TVs to no success. Aww. And Russell, <laughs> Russell Drum, there's a whole generation of Montauk'ers will never know the sound that you'd hear every 12 seconds on their radios beginning in the early 60s, ending in 1979. Every 12 seconds. Every 12 seconds. Holy moly. So, could radar transmissions actually control you? The thing that Nichols claims is that these transmissions are capable of pretty fantastical things. But as their presidents, well, what is radar? Radar transmits electromagnetic waves out into the world. When they hit something, they bounce back, and they hit the receiver. And the receiver sends the data into a computer where it can be determined by humans. It's humanity's answer to not being able to echo uh, echolocate. Electromagnetic waves, well, they're everything. Looking at your cat is electromagnetic, wave, electromagnetic waves of light bouncing off them back into your eyeballs. And electromagnetic waves are made of tiny packets of energy called photons. The energy carried by each photon is determined by the frequency of the wave. For example, low-frequency waves like AM radio have photons that carry tiny, itty-bitty amounts of energy, where X-rays contain a lot of energy, enough to pass through human bodies or even metal. So when photons interact with atoms, it can be absorbed by an electron, giving the electron all its energy, and this can cause the electron to orbit slightly further from the atom. If a photon, is hit, if a photon has enough energy hits an atom, it could knock that electron free, which is really bad. So low-energy photons like AM radio waves don't have enough energy to fuck with things. But with enough energy, it can damage things like DNA, cause aging, or even cancer. This is why you wear lead vests when you get your teeth x-rayed. Humans have a pretty good idea of which frequencies are problematic, 
The general consensus is it starts in the low ultra ultraviolet space of the spectrum. This is why looking at the sun is bad, as it lets off ultraviolet light and burns your retinas. Science is fun. <laughs> the frequencies that are most thought, mostly thought to be harmless create non-ionizing radia ra radiation. And ionizing radiation is the kind that turns you into a mutant. I have a thing here. So just a diagram of the different spectrums of electromagnetic radiation. So what are the frequencies? So low frequencies like AM radios are harmless and the sun will make you blind. Where does radar stand? So an AM radio is between 540 kilohertz and 1600 kilohertz. Ultraviolet light is around 30 petahertz up to 750 terahertz, also known as a fuckton. And the Sage radar tower was designed to operate between 420 to 450 megahertz, which is tiny. So those X-ray machines at airports, they fall into the microwave range between 300, to 300 megahertz to 300 gigahertz. Which brings us to the question, is if 420 to 450 megahertz is enough to control your mind, why isn't the TSA and dentists ruling the world? <laughs> Obviously because they don't have powerful psychics attached. That is Obviously. clearly the problem. <laughs> yeah. They haven't been chosen by, by the aliens. I was I was looking and I was like, where where is five G on this? And then I looked and saw that remote controls have a higher electromagnetic spectrum wave than a, a regular cell phone. So I just think that all of it's bullshit, and people should be afraid of their remotes. So yeah, that's what I was gonna get to next. Is that an RF field requires to be about ten gigahertz for it to penetrate bare human skin. So if you're wearing clothes, it's not gonna get there. That is over 20 times more powerful than the Sage Tower in Montauk. So even with the psychic, I doubt you'd be able to penetrate someone's skull miles away and implant thoughts. And you are likely exposed to frequencies a couple times more powerful than the Sage Tower on a daily basis. Probably at this moment, considering wireless internet is broadcasted at 2.4 and 5 gigahertz frequencies. So we're all being mind controlled by our routers and modems. So Obviously. But yeah, more powerful I mean, than the fucking radar tower. <laughs> Shut, shut a Wi-Fi a Wi-Fi router down and see everybody scramble. <laughs> we don't know what to do with ourselves. We just keep trying to reconnect. <laughs> it's true. So throughout the book, illustrations are made by Nichols about how the technology worked. Most of it's far beyond my understanding of electronics, but Steve Volk took it took a crack at it. And here's a picture of one of the diagrams. In case you know anything about electronics. And Steve Oak had this to say, he said, I had a couple of electrical en engineers look them over and neither thought the diagram displayed any meaningful competency. I invite believers, skeptics, or strictly neutral parties with an interest in the project to submit the drawings, or submit the drawings to still more electrical engineers. Perhaps my guys are wrong. So yeah, there's all these, di these diagrams in the books like, oh, this is how all the technology works. No, it's total bullshit. That doesn't align with any, like, en electrical engineering that anyone's familiar with. Yeah. So then we have the Acid House. <laughs> Documentarian Chris Garadano has spent decades looking at the Montauk, and he has seen some strange and compelling things. He would meet a man named Brian Minnick, and Minnick had grown up in Montauk. He was a teenager in the 90s, and he and his friends would love sneaking onto the base exploring. They would even start bringing video cameras, and they filmed hundreds of hours of their explorations, and they got caught and arrested many times. Among some footage from 1995, there's a film that shows what looks like multiple underground floors, which the army says doesn't exist. Here's a, a screen grab from one of those videos. Um, 
so yeah, there's not supposed to be multiple floors to the base in Montauk. So obviously there's some level of forest floors where there was at some point. Um, but the weirdest thing was this house where every room was different. The walls were all painted in elaborate and bizarre patterns, but expertly, the floor, ceiling, outlets, and switches having all been clearly taped off. While the rooms were painted, it doesn't look like it's, you know, standard vandalism. So I've got some pictures of the rooms. Fortunately, we've really only got video, like, there's some really poor footage of it, so it's hard to fully grasp what we're seeing there. But there, there were a lot of rooms with a lot of patterns and stuff in them. And it just looks fucking weird. Yeah, and it reminds me of a lot of acid rooms. <laughs> yeah, daycare. <laughs> yeah, they just oh, go put the kids on hallucinogens and leave them in the acid <laughs> and let them go. They won't I know mean, how to escape. <laughs> young young minds are the easiest to, you know, give mushrooms to. <laughs> well, I was thinking uh, the easiest the to mold. mold. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, mushroom is a mold. Oh, okay, I'll leave now. It's true. It's true. <laughs> so yeah, it does look similar to reports that we've seen about acid rooms from when hallucinogenic experiments have been done in the past. But the uh, house has been long destroyed, so we'll never know for sure. It could have been just some really very patient vandals, <laughs> for all we know. Um, in fact, in wildlife, one of the many pieces of evidence that about what happened in Montauk is the behavior of local wildlife. Nearly all proponents of the theory claim that there's no wildlife at Camp Hero. In the video, in the the video of Nichols' first talk, he, he's doing the um, <laughs> slideshow. He's like, one thing there is is there's no birds here. Where are the bird droppings? <laughs> and he's like saying this really loud repeatedly, pointing at pictures of ceiling of like roofs. He's like, where are all the bird droppings? There's no birds here. Um. <laughs> oh, good. I mean, <laughs> you know, this thing called rain, but <laughs> right. But also, like, maybe they are bothered by, like, I guess the thing is shut down. But like, maybe originally they were bothered by the fucking oh, totally stuff mm -hmm. and the I can see that or whatever. But like, also, like, we have lots of birds outside of our house, and we only get see bird poop if it poops on our windshield. And we don't, that only maybe happens like twice a year. Yeah. So, but we definitely fucking have birds, my guy. <laughs> right. So, uh, one thing you'll read from pretty much anyone exploring the base, not for the purpose of the conspiracy theory, is that the base is just fucking lousy with deer. Just posted a picture of the tower when a deer walking by. Speaking wow. of deer, one of the oft repeated stories is that during the Monty Project, deer were driven into town to smash the windows. Steve Voke had a chance to talk to some locals about this, and this is what they said. Locals laughed this off, ascribing this often retold tale mostly to a single incident. A deer lost its footing while running through town, slid into a closed tavern door, righted itself, and galloped off. This is the big legend about the deer in Montauk. Wow. That's very different. <laughs> the, the radio waves made them lose it. Right. What, a, what a fish story. <laughs> Um, so everything I read about Montauk always states that there have always been rumors of secret government projects in Montauk, but finding actual statements from before the Nichols' talk hasn't really been an easy thing. So I resorted to comment, combing through Montauk newspaper articles. Unfortunately, not many of them have been digitized, so I had to just review the article indexes. 
Uh, but nothing screened government conspiracy unless all the local phishing reports were some sort of secret code that I missed. Don't give them ideas, Kayla. <laughs> hmm. The halibut count this year is high. <laughs> <laughs> that means there was a ship. I knew it. As expected, many of the Montauk locals think this whole thing is fucking ridiculous. Um, in a 2016 interview with Richard Whelan, who is the president of the East Hamptons Trails Preservation Society, he says, when I write my historical encyclopedia of East End places, one thing I'll ignore is that there's nothing behind it. It's just about selling books for people who live here. There is absolutely no mystery. In 1982, a year after the camp would have been closed, Whelan went exploring, quote, a lot of the base camp buildings were still there. At the time, you turned down the main street and the church was there and we started down that street and there were deer on the road. But of course, no people or cars. Whelan then talks about how the radar tower wasn't even locked at the time and that he was able to go up to the top and said that the view was spectacular, but nothing really suspicious, even though according to Nichols, the Montauk project should have been still happening at the time. Here's a view from the top of the tower, by the way. It is really pretty. Oh, wow. I like the graffiti. Right. Yeah, the tower's been completely graffitied. Um, Willow talks about how in 1984, before the area was donated to the, st donated to the state, the GSA had put a property up for sale. But Whelan and many of the other locals went and protested, and that's what got the property handed to the state. Quote, the western portion of what is called Point Woods, it's one of the only old growth areas in Montauk that was never cut down. The Point Woods still have specimen-sized oak trees, and most notable to me is the beautiful understory of Mount Laurel in American Holly. I'm going to guess that some of it is 150 years old. So yeah, we're going to protect this area, <laughs> obviously, because there is a lot of diverse wildlife and plant life. Um, local newspapers in Montauk got into the hype of this whole thing. In 1997, the East Hampton Independent ran an article on the story. They reported receiving a number of calls report supporting the theory, including one from a woman who was afraid to identify herself, who told them that she was so glad that some information was finally coming out about the situation that her husband was currently working in the subterranean facility. She said that she knew for a fact that there were nine levels underground, and some of the levels were very vast in size. So yeah, so obviously some locals bought into it. There's, oh, yeah, it's like, the, it's like the dumbs, the deep underground military bases. It's like, what the heck? All right. Um, Donald E. Bender, who grew up in Long Island, um, he had this to say. I know of no evidence to suggest anything even remotely sinister took place in the Montauk Air Force Station. The base was a small, closely-knit community, which seems worst choice of venue to conduct clandestine experiments. I mean, the Air Force even issued hundreds of passes to local fishermen so that they could have access to the shore. If there's anything really weird going on, it's probably happening in the Hamptons. It's the fish. It's the fish again, see? It's all about the, the fish. fish. Yeah, that's amazing. Wow. <laughs> But the Montauk Project isn't the only spooky story about the area. In November 2021, Best Rattrade wrote a blog telling a story about a strange if eight-foot-tall apparition carrying chains with a really small head that she and others encountered in the area in her teens. And Chris Garitano's Strange Files, he spoke to some locals that talked about in the 70s trucks would go around spraying chemicals, which seemed to make people walk around like zombies. So just kind of typical small-town urban legends and stuff. So the aliens, I mean, how do we not talk about the aliens? All of the Montagians talk about alien involvement and the application of galactic politics. 
From the king of reptilians that like to get drunk on Drano, to the Syrians that provided the original Montauk chair designs. While being interviewed once, Bielik was once asked which aliens have the most control over humans. Quote, It's the Orion group. They're the weasels in the background that manipulate everybody, including the greys. The Orion group includes various reptilian species. For a long time, they were hoping to crossbreed. It didn't work properly. That was one of the many issues of the Montauk project. To find ways of crossbreeding. They never did, follow, they never did fully solve that problem. <laughs> So time travel, I don't know if, but I don't really know nearly enough about physics to debate this. So there's something that Bielik said. He says, quote, no one has picked up a tangible future beyond 2012 AD. There is a very abrupt wall there with nothing in the other side. Prophecies speak of an earth changes around the time. Curious, isn't it? He used to say this all the time, of course, obviously until, you know, 2012 passed and the world was still spinning. <laughs> oh, I guess that was wrong. <laughs> Just <laughs> like the, the time travel fun stuff, like oh, look at these people that look like other people. Keanu Reeves is immortal, so fun. But like, <laughs> shit. Um. Yeah. So there's a whole thing about Alistair Crowley being related to the Camerons. And no. that um, Jack Parsons and uh, LRH are also involved there. It's a whole thing. Which, that's just Peter Moon's like latest pet project. I do know that at some point, Peter Moon and Duncan Cameron had a falling out. I don't know why, but I have a feeling this bullshit might be, be the reason. Because <laughs> I'm going to make up a bunch of shit about your family, and now you're related to LRH. Have a good day. <laughs> <laughs> I said I wasn't expecting Crowley and all that, but I guess right? I shouldn't be surprised. <laughs> so there is a lab nearby called Brookhaven Labs. It's about two hours from Camp Hero. Um, is all it's frequently mentioned whenever this conspiracy theory comes up, as it does. It worked. It's part of the um, government research, doing a lot of research into uh, uh, nuclear technology and such. But there's nothing weird about it, really. They, you know, they polluted some groundwater for a while there, and there's like half a billion dollars of cleanup that happened. But that's really all I got about them. <laughs> yeah. Huh. But we're gonna talk about the Montauk Monster. <gasps> so Plum Island, off the coast of the northern tip of Long Island, is a small island known as Plum Island. This charmingly named island is owned by the government. All access is strictly controlled by the Department of Homeland Security. In 1954, it became the site for the Plum Island Animal Disease Center, established by the United States Department of Agriculture, a federal research facility erected in response to the outbreaks of foot and mouth disease in cattle, cattle in Mexico and Canada. In 1992, the island was opened up to news media for the first time, which may have been a bad idea because three years later, they were fined for $111,000 for storing hazard chem hazardous chemicals on the island. Ouch. <laughs> So in 2000, the Institute wanted to expand their work to include human diseases, but local activists shut that right down. Um, the Wall Street Journal reported in January 2002 that many scientists and governments and officials wanted the lab closed, believing that the threat of foot and mouth disease was so remote that the center didn't really merit its 16.5 million yearly budget. It's a lot of dollars to spend. Yeah. Suspicious. Right? 
So Plum Island has had experienced outbreaks on their own, including one in 1978 in which the disease was released to animals outside the center, and two incidents in 2004 where foot and mouth disease was released within the center. As of right now, it's slated for closure in 2023, with work coming with with work moving to a new lab under construction in Manhattan, Kansas. This will be a level four laboratory, meaning that it can study human diseases as well. So fun fact, some people believe that Lyme disease, first seen in Lyme, Connecticut, was actually a biological weapon made at this facility, despite evidence of Lyme disease existing prior to this lab. <laughs> uh, so, July, July 2008, a mysterious animal carcass washes up a few miles west of Camp Hero. The creature, a quadruped of indeterminate size, was dead when discovered and was assumed to have come from Plum Island probably know this as the Montauk Monster. Picture. The photo went viral, particularly because it's so difficult to tell what the hell it is. Some swear it's a decomposing raccoon. Others say it's a diseased dog or a coyote. Then that had some time at sea or wrote enough, or some sort of experiment gone awry from Plum Island. To make matters more mysterious, no one knows what happened to the body, so we will likely never know for sure what happened. To me, though, it does look like a raccoon. I have a raccoon anatomy drawing here. It checks out. It's got like a beak face. Yeah, well, this is the flesh like is. The... That's what I was going to say. Like the yeah. flesh is gone. Yeah, your flesh around like your mouth and. Oh, yeah. Okay. Never mind. Gone so fast. Yeah, that looks like a mangy ass raccoon. Yeah. yeah. All right. So. We've got weird, like pseudo people hands like raccoons have. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's still weird looking, but those, yeah, those I do think it's just <laughs> So August 12, 2003, one of the factors of the Montauk Project is biorhythms. Nichols states that nearly every 20 years, there are, there's a biorhythm in which, like, peak strangeness can occur. So 1943 was the Philadelphia experiment, 1963 was when Duncan was transferred into a new body, and 1983 was when the, the Montauk Project imploded. According to this trend, the next biorhythm year would have been 2003. Both Bielik and Nichols allegedly predicted that between August 10th to 14th of 2003, there would be a blackout. According to Peter Moon, the world's largest blackout did occur on August 14th, 2003. There indeed was a very large blackout. Here's a map of those that have been affected. It's occurred on... um, So yeah, large blackout. This impacted northeastern U.S. and central Canada. The power was knocked out from two hours to four days, depending on where you lived. The uh, blackout was caused by a software bug in the alarm system for First Energy. Now, it's not the largest blackout that's ever happened in history. It's the second after the 1999 blackout in Brazil. And it's estimated about 10 million people in Canada and 45 million in the U.S. were impacted. So there was a blackout, but I never found any evidence of Nichols or Bielik's predictions prior to this event. I, but, I remember that blackout. I was working. <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> well, you know what? The next peak strange times would be August 10th to 14th of 2023. Do you guys want to make some bets? Hell yeah! Okay. So, so on know. that date, we should we should totally record something. Heck yeah. Obviously. Yes. And then when nothing happens. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's easy to laugh at all this, just the sheer ridiculousness of it, but the fact is there have been some very real projects with very similar elements, as we all know. Um, we have Operation Sea Spray in 1950s, where the U.S. Navy sprayed large quantities of bacteria over San Francisco, infecting dozens and killing at least one person. 
We have MKUltra that ran for 20 years of illegal human experiments by the CIA in hopes of finding a method of mind control. Using any method you can think possible, including psychoactive drugs, chemicals, electroshock, hypnosis, sensory deprivation, isolation, verbal and sexual abuse, in addition to multiple forms of torture. 80 institutions were involved in this, um, and the amount of people impacted we'll never know for sure, because many of the the documents were destroyed in 1973. So yeah, MKUltra, if you want to feel bad about being a human, that's a good thing to read about. And then there's like um, the Tuskegee experiments and stuff. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. Project Paperclip. Yeah. Yeah. We have Operation Plum Bob, which is a 1957 a series of atmospheric nuclear tests that were done in Nevada as part of Operation Plum Bob. It's estimated that the effects of this radiation could have been responsible for between 11,000 to 212,000 excess cases of thyroid cancer in the area. Holy shit. Yeah. Not good. And then the U.S. Army Biological Warfare Test. From 1963 to 69, as part of the Project Shipboard Hazard and Defense, the U.S. Army performed tests where, which involved spraying several U.S. ships with various biological and chemical warfare agents, while thousands of U.S. military personnel were aboard the ships. The personnel were not notified about the test, and they were not provided with protective equipment. Damn. So these are things that we fucking yeah. know happened. Right. And this is just the stuff that's and, been, you know, revealed so far. Yeah, and and there is like evidence of like the military experimenting on soldiers. Like you kind of don't have a whole lot of rights when you're a soldier in the U.S. Yeah. military. You you do what you're told, and like they've taken advantage of that for sure. Even less when you're a prisoner of war. Yeah, yeah. Military does some bad shit, y'all. Okay, cats. Fuck off. <laughs> All right. So the base today, there are still many claim the base that the project didn't stop in 1983. For some years after the alleged closing, many people comment that they had seen the radar change positions to them, indicating it was still on. But the radar was in safe mode, allowing it to move with the wind to reduce resistance. The mechanisms have rusted since, so it doesn't do that anymore. And here are some pictures from inside the base from today. This is a picture of the bowling alley. Wow. And this is in one of the bunkers. Much of the land around the base has been turned into a family-friendly picnic area, but there are still sections of the base that are closed off to the public because of the hazards. To enter the base, a permit is required. As per local reporter Jerry Simpsey, I got the permit through Parks Department, but a Parks Department employee follows you in a car discreetly like 100 feet back, and you're not allowed to go inside any of the buildings. Steve Volk had this to say about the current state. Believers in the Montauk Project raise further questions about the security of the base. From my point of view, however, restrictions preventing trips underground or walks through hazardous areas reflect typical bureaucratic concerns about liability. Shots of the base's old radar tower are dramatic, revealing panels missing from the big heavy dish. Panels that weigh hundreds of pounds. Putting up a fence lest people get killed strikes me as a necessary safety precaution. But there was something that was found recently in one of Garitano's documentaries, which is kind of strange. According to Steve Oak, the show does end with the discovery of some unidentified structures or anomalies beneath the ground, which might be consistent with fuel storage tanks or could represent something else. I find the discovery interesting, but it doesn't even begin to confirm the Montauk Project. It's one thing to find a structure underground, after all, and quite another to discover what happened there. 
So Chris Garitano has stated in the podcast that when he was speaking with the geoscan technicians off camera, one of them said that it did look like scans that they'd seen of mass graves. But there are many other likely causes, more likely causes for those results. Definitely interesting. There's something there. We don't know what it is. Right. And it could just be like a fuel tank or something. Yeah. All right. So this is this is the uh, this is the big one, the Montauk Boys. So the Montauk Boys are part of the legend that many people become particularly interested in, and is the role that most alleged survivors have claimed to had. The number of Montauk Boys has since grown up and recovered their memories is staggering, and there are more coming out every day. The story is that the children would be kidnapped, mentally broken down to nothing, through physical, psychological, and even sexual release. That's part of the story that tends to get glossed over. Nichols, Duncan, Duncan and Swordlow all have strong beliefs that at the point of sexual release, the human mind becomes susceptible to suggestion. Their beliefs rooted in the work of Wilhelm Reich, most famous for his discovery of orgone, or orgasmic life energy. This fucking guy again. This fucking guy. Yeah, so while New Age loved to remember Reich as this cancer-curing energy of orgone and how the government tried to suppress him by arresting him where he'd die in prison as a martyr, there's a lot of aspects that are blatantly ignored. There's a lot about Reich, and one day we'll, we'll do orgone and get way into it, but um, those cliff notes are Reich was mentored by Sigmund Freud, but instead of being obsessed with his mother, he became obsessed with sex. This wasn't all bad, though. He brought free sex, free sex edu- education, mental health, and contraceptive devices to the working classes of Vienna in the 1920s. But his ideas slowly grew more outlandish, discovering Oregon in 1939 and est- establishing the Organo- Organomic Infant Research Center in 1950. The years following Sorry, did many... You say infant? Yes. Oh, Okay. In the years following, many child patients would come forward claiming sexual abuse by their therapist, though there was never any allegations against Reich specifically. Uh, okay, hang on. Apparently it scared Freya because her tail's all buffed up now. Mm. Um, in, 19, in 1951, he discovered DOR, which is deadly orgone radiation. This is the research that was used in Montauk. When he began to claim his orgone devices and research could cure cancer, people got worried and he was reported to the FDA. This resulted in one of the largest mass censorships in U.S. history, with the burning of over six tons of his books and research materials. Damn. Right? Six tons? Six tons. That's so much. That's so much. So with his life's work essentially banned, his mental state deteriorated and he became obsessed with the idea that UFOs were attacking the Earth and would take his son to go and hunt them. Oh my goodness. In 1956, he was imprisoned where he would remain until his heart failed the following year, in November 1957. Laura Reich Reich Rubin, one of Reich's daughters and a psychiatrist, believes that her father had bipolar and likely was the victim of childhood sexual abuse, which would explain his fixation on sex throughout his life. If you know anything about Sherry Schreiner, this probably sounds strangely familiar as it kind of mimics her life. (laughs) Yeah. And considering her obsession with Oregon, it's like she just wanted to be just like her inspiration, I suppose. True. So Reich wasn't the only person to study Oregon, though. In 1941, he brought his discoveries of orgasmic energy to Albert Einstein. Whoever the scientist naturally tested all these theories. He concluded that there was nothing substantial to this theory. Wright claims that Einstein's rejection was a communist plot. I. That's the only reason that it could happen. (laughs) 
Oh my god, I can't. I I'm sorry. I would have <laughs> loved to have been a fly on that wall. Oh, he, like he um. <laughs> So Reich wrote back, this was an exchange that was happening in letters, he wrote back a 25-page letter, basically bitching Einstein out about how he could understand it. And Einstein's like, dude, calm down. And he's like, I'm, he's like, I'm going to post these letters so people can see how ridiculous you are. And Einstein's like, I'd prefer if you didn't, but <laughs> you know what, I'm not the one with the problem here. <laughs> so yeah, Nichols, Duncan, and Swordlow all believe that sexual healing is a big part of the deprogramming. There are dozens of counts of Swordlow and his wife using this as an excuse to coerce their patients into sexual relations. Swordlow is a voracious con man that has been peddling his services and wares on the international scale for over 20 years now. Well, Duncan and Nichols never did such a thing as far as I can find. If we suspend all disbelief and accept that the healing through sexual contact is actually a thing, it doesn't change the fact that there, there are patients of this care that feel victimized and taken advantage of. What occurs between two consenting adults is one thing. If you believe in this and you know others that do and you want to exercise that kind of therapy amongst yourselves, go to town, be safe. But children cannot consent, and consent under coercion or duress is not true consent. And then we must consider the power dynamics that come into play in these scenarios. When you position yourself as an all-knowing guru, immediately the power balance is at odds. And we've seen this time and time again with cults and celebrities. Yeah. While Swordlow is clearly a predator, Nichols is where things get a little grayer. Like Swordlow, Nichols did offer deprogramming service, but as far as I could tell, it was not something he ever charged for or advertised. People sought him out. So I found this article written by um, Chris Ketchum from 2001, where he was investigating this. And, uh, yeah, so he, he spoke to a number of people around Montauk and stuff, and this is what he found out. So Nichols had many fans. One was a 20-year-old man named Anthony Kraft, a kid who had been in and out of institutions for years. Quote, Julia fell in love with Kraft 10 years ago when she was 15. She dated him on and off for eight years, and she watched as he, as she, as she watched as what she calls the Montauk crap began to rule his life. Julia gave Chris Ketchum the number of Kraft's brother, brother, and while Ketchum never was able to connect with Kraft, between Julia and his brother, he was able to piece together the tragic story of a boy. Quote, Kraft was the eldest of three boys. His father died in a plane crash when he was eight. His mother, unable to cope with him, having been suicidal since the age of five, put him away in a group home where he was abused by other boys. Kraft claimed that Kraft claimed all kinds of strange things. One woman who dated him, a 37-year-old woman named Alexandra Chica Bruce, told me. This was, this was after a lecture by Preston in 1995. He really believed that he'd been mind-controlled. He started saying that I was involved too and that I was an assassin from another planet. I would get calls at four in the morning. Quick, write this down. I am the master of the Moonstone. I was having nightmares associating with him. Julia said that he was an alcoholic who liked to bang his head into walls. She once tried to stop him, but he threw her across the room, said he was a werewolf, and to watch out. He'd always been obsessed with demonology and pre-Sumerian gods, but when he started to read Montauk in 1995, it was simply a matter of making the switch from one set of gods to another. Julia told Ketchum that there were about 25 hard hardcore Montauk boys in the mid and late 90s. They read the books, they contacted Nichols through Moon, and then they made the pilgrimage, sometimes as far away as California and New Mexico. So Kraft's own brother would buy into the hype as well, claiming to have begun to recover his own memories in 1997. 
Quote, Nichols said he couldn't affect his deprogramming over the phone, that he needed to conduct a hand scan and his Reikian energy probe, which meant physical contact. At age 19, Keel, which is Kraft's brother, left home in Arizona to come to Long Island and end up staying for three years. This is a quote from Julia. They never had formal gatherings. It was usually just hanging out. Anthony and his roommate Brandon rented a place together, and Preston would come to the house, and there'd be four or five guys just sitting around. Each guy would go into the bedroom with Preston alone, and then they'd come out wild-eyed with these sorts, all sorts of stories, and Preston would come out covered in sweat. And every week, there was a new story, a new discovery. And so, indeed, like, there was Kraft, the operator of the project, the interstellar assassin, the guy who went back in time and created the universe. The Kraft and Keel, who were twins of the 21st parallel dimension. Kraft, who was an age-regressed Vietnam veteran. Kraft, who was a 60s rock star that even had a hit song called My Baby Loves Love, was singing lead for the band Edison Lighthouse. Quote from Juliet. Sorry? Edison yeah. Lighthouse? Okay. Is this an actual band? Because I don't know. <laughs> Looking, because I like the name. It is an actual band. Uh, it's from the... <laughs> Love grows from my rosemary clothes. You know that song. <laughs> so yeah, he thought he was the lead singer of that band. Um, okay. Yeah. So Julia, quote, the crap that they would spew. Anthony was being confused by it all. And how could he not be? With all the information that he was being fed, he, told, he, he was told to seek inside his own mind, whether it was his dreams or past life memories or stories he'd read. He was told it was all fact. If I thought that all the things that I dreamt were true... I would be insane. Mm. So Ketchum asked Kraft's brother. Sorry? <laughs> That's fair. Yeah. So Ketchum asked Kraft's brother about the treatment that Nichols had provided, and he responded without hesitance. According to Keel, the subject undresses and lies down. Nichols massages the legs and arms and chest, scanning for frequencies. Nichols then masturbates the subject to the edge of orgasm, freezing the subject in a kind of pre-orgasmic dream state that was supposed to reverse and thereby nullify the sexual magic of the Montauk chair. Stuart Swerdlow, Jimmy Abatello, and at least 12 other men were all deprogrammed in this manner. This was how they discovered their involvement in the project, and they gladly submitted for this and they needed to believe it. Quote, none of us ever had a problem with the process. The process was always very regimented. It was straight out work. There was never anything uncomfortable about it. Often there were multiple people present, observers taking notes. That's uncomfortable. What do you mean that's not uncomfortable? That whole situation is uncomfortable. Yeah. So Chris Ketchum asks, Kale's like, well, if you grew up and you spent your entire life in the Western United States, then when were you at Camp Hero? And Kale sighs and says he doesn't know for sure. From what I've been told by Preston Nichols, there were times when I was out here. I don't know. There's a lot I don't know. But as time goes on, everything seems to reassure me that I was involved. So Chris Ketchum says, I had a lot of questions. And of course, I would get no straight answers. Was deprogrammed simply closet homosexuality? The conspiracy an elaborate denial mechanism? Was Nichols a pathological predator feeding this, his boys information under hypnosis, toying with them, in effect, brainwashing them? It was a consensual, consensual one, too. Perfectly legal. The boys were all of age, and some like Stuart Swerdlow were middle-aged and married. No one I know of has ever come forward to attack Preston's motives or impugn him with charges of sexual assault, molestation, or rape. There's nothing in the legal record against him, and as far as I can tell, Preston Nichols really thought he was doing good, exercising the sorrows of mind-control victims. He was psychotically sincere. Conspiracy theory is popular because it speaks to real possibilities. 
The reality of MKUltra, for example, even if it does so in unreal ways, possibilities of the world is not just what it seems or what we are told and that there's even more to these events. It finds meaning behind the mundane, erects vast forces of good and evil contending for the world, and places the conspirologist who knows what's really going on at the heart of the drama, suffering for the truth that no one else has the courage to champion. Preston Nichols, prophet, hero, seeker, savior to the lost souls like Anthony Kraft. Nichols told me he gave up deprogramming some three years ago, but he is still sought out. A young Hotmail user from Red Hook, New York, wrote on a Montauk message board, quote, I have a few memories of Montauk. I know that I know that you can personally detect them in an individual. Can, can you do this via remote? It is very important to me, and I would like to clear up some things involved. Someone logs in as Preston Nichols and replies, I've had no success detecting from a long distance. We'd have to meet in person. Creepy. Uh, yeah, catch those articles. One of the only articles and sources I found about Nichols deprogramming. I searched hard. Like with Ketchum's research, I even looked at legal records for Nichols and found none. So at a loss, I reached out to Chris Garitano, the director of, the Mo- of multiple Montauk Project documentaries. Having known the crew since the early 2000s, his most recent documentary was a show on Discovery in 2017. By all accounts, he's as close as an expert as you can get. So I asked him many questions, but among them was this. Do you know if Nichols may have been a sexual predator? I stated that I totally understood if Chris didn't want to speak, speak ill of the dead. He got back to me and said he'd absolutely be willing to chat and wanted to set up a call. Unfortunately, we were never able to nail down a time. But in my research, I did end up listening to a podcast that Chris was on, and he said this. The first day that I met Preston Nichols, and I think Nichols is a, great, is a nice guy, but he was still trying to get everybody into the chair naked. The guys that were with me the first time that I met him in 2006, and I have footage of this. How does this go from, I just met you 10 minutes ago, to, okay, I'm going to put my hands on your genitals. So, today, Nichols, Bielik, and Duncan are no longer with us. Bielik died in 2011, Nichols in 2018, and Duncan in 2019 from prostate cancer. Well, most information would have you believe these guys stuck together to the end, that's not necessarily true. In October 2018, when Duncan was becoming sicker from cancer, he had this to say. It has come to my attention that Peter Moon is giving updates on my health status. Since I am no longer in contact with him, he is not authorized to obtain any level and discuss any information pertaining to me, and I consider it infringement on my personal boundaries. Despite this, this didn't stop Moon from writing an obituary on Duncan on his site, and one line in particular got my eye. Quote, Above and beyond his personal complexities, idiosyncrasies, and reluctance to probe into certain areas, Duncan contributed greatly in helping us understand the psychology of time the whole not wanting to probe into certain areas yeah yeah about that yeah so on july 1st 2017 duncan was featured on other world radio where he talked about montauk for the first time in years and he carefully avoided sensitive topics but he did say that he takes issue with how some of the montauk books are written saying that he and nichols were just trying to get through the day as he reminisced about all the time they used to spend together just hanging out and talking to this day, Peter Moon continues to expand in the Montauk lore, despite Nichols, Bielik, and Duncan no longer being with us. Moon seems to find some way to connect whatever his current interests are or new friends to Montauk. So what do we make from all this? Is, well, Swordlow is clearly in it for the money, the fame, and access to victims. Duncan, it's hard to say. Over the years, he's intermittently distanced himself from these things, but seems to have always come back. Bielik, while he did make some efforts to monetize the story, it was nothing compared to Swordlow and Moon. He seemed to be mostly in it for the opportunity to tell stories. And then Nichols, on the other hand, other than the books, he sold nothing. He didn't even have a website. 
he hosted monthly free Montauk nights for people to come and just talk about Montauk and ask questions. More than anything, I think he wanted to entertain people and tell stories. From all his beliefs, in, and from, from all reports, his beliefs in Reiki and techniques was earnest. It was, it was something he believed, which is easy to imagine as once head of the Long Island chapter of the USPA, an association that hungers for something beyond conventional science. A great many of the members are very science-minded and explore the realm of fringe sciences for the purpose of human betterment as they see it. Which makes the question of Nichols' motives harder to parse. All of his known patients were adults and they consented. All testimonies we can find about the treatment he offered, his patients believed he was helping them. Many, if not all, of these men came from broken homes or traumatic situations, and maybe Nichols provided a safe place and something that gave them answers for their, all their hardships. Looking at some of the underlying themes of the Montauk story, a part of me wonders if Nichols has been, had been a victim of childhood sexual abuse himself, and instead of processing it, instead of dealing with it, he pushed it down. It's a common thing that we see with conspiracy theorists is they turn to these wild stories to give them some sort of answer that makes sense other than the fact that sometimes bad stuff happens. The story of Montauk provides an answer to childhood trauma, a reason, and explores all the fantastical elements that children love. Who didn't want to travel back in time or see aliens as a kid? Who didn't wish that their hardships would be rewarded with superpowers? Who didn't want to be special? In the beginning, I think Nichols heard an interesting story and began to add on it and retelling it, enjoying the wonder and curiosity. And when people start to identify with the stories, maybe he thought that you were helping. Or maybe through this that he was exercising his own demons. How long can you tell a story before you believe yourself? Chris Garitano had this to say. They're, they weren't gaining anything from these stories. There was no financial reward for them. They are just consistently setting themselves up to be ridiculed. And this has been going on for decades. However, a funny thing happened while filming. It really affected me. The subject matter is about how all this stuff is going on beneath the surface, and you became a broader scope than just concentrating on these guys and their stories. I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I found myself getting really paranoid while making this film. The power of suggestion is really strong sometimes. Hmm. And that's my talk. Wild. Yeah. Bloody. Yeah, but you weren't expecting it to go there. <laughs> No. Not at yeah. all. Yeah. Yeah, it's fucking yeah. Obviously Swordlow's still doing his thing and he's a total douchebag and fuck that guy. And he if he finds out about this episode, he's gonna try and sue us, so yay. But uh <laughs> On what grounds, sir? On what grounds? Libel or whatever, right? Yeah, well yeah. Slander not, libel. I can't remember which one it is. It's not slander nor libel. <laughs> so he can send us I am citing sources in the DM. <laughs> And but, uh, we can laugh and ignore it. <laughs> I don't know what do you guys think. What, what was Nichols' motives? Who fucking knows? All of this is just like a bad trip. It's a lot. <laughs> yeah, I mean that could be. That's. I I mean he because he doesn't quite fit the true believer kind of like stereotype, but at the same time. It feels almost like he just wants to be included and like be special and like yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a feeling that I very much got too. That he just like he just loves talking, and like he's always like everything I've read about him is very charismatic, and he just loves to just tell stories. And you watch the video of his talks and stuff, and he's just having the best time ever engaging with the audience. He's very charismatic in that way. So I could see it just being that like yeah, he just like loves the attention and interaction that it gave him. Maybe he just wanted to be part of a community. And he, so he made his own. <laughs> yeah. He made his own, right. 
that could be it. And like, cause he kept up until his death, he kept up with this. He never once backed out or anything like that. Yep. So, and like, how would you step down from that after 20, 30 years? Yeah, really? There's no back. How you back at some point? <laughs> like, oh, yeah. sorry, everything I've said for the last 30 years. Whoopsie. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, that took way longer than I thought it was going to. <laughs> <laughs> good. And that's it for this week. Hopefully you enjoyed this deep dive in the Montauk. If you want to know more, I highly recommend checking out the website as there is a lot of details that I couldn't fit in due to the time. And this rabbit hole goes hella deep, y'all. Next week, Hallie takes us back to the 18th century where the first girl bosses ruled the streets of London, known as the crime syndicate, the 40 Elephants. Made up entirely of women, the group ran for nearly 100 years, and we will never know the total value of just how much they stole via their elaborate shoplifting operation. As always, links, pictures, and additional information can be found on our website at thehumanexception.com. To keep up with all things exceptional, be sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at The Human Exception. Have a story you want us to cover? Want to tell us that we're wrong or you just want to say hi? You can email us at thehumanexception at gmail.com. And to get in on the fun, come join us on our Discord server. Link can be found on our contact page. Keep on being exceptional, my humans, and have a wonderful weekend. So my original research for this was over 200,000 words. Hala! Yeah. It was a lot. <laughs> I've read so much stuff, and there's things that I know about now that I want to know. <laughs> there's That's a book. That's two books. It's like right? Volume one and volume two. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. That's so it just- it blows my mind that like there's been so little critical analysis of this. Yeah, it's like the closest thing is Garitano's documentaries, and even then they're pretty unbiased for the most part. But it's referenced in so many things. Yeah, everything. That is wild. It's so big. It's stupid. Like I, I remember hearing about this forever, never really knowing what it was. Right. Oh, Montauk, Montauk. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. I'd never heard about it before I, you brought it up. <laughs> Well, now you know. (laughs) And now I know so much and my brain just cannot handle it. (laughs) That is fair. I'm just glad that I can stop looking at it now. (laughs) Yeah. It's a long couple months. Too much.